I am the scourge of Dimension X. I am the tyrant of the Technodrome. I'm also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman, a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Welcome back to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Robot Clown Sea Captains, the only logical choice when it comes to pulling off a successful April Fool's Day prank. Today's episode, The Last Laugh. In one of the earliest episodes of Batman that we get, the Joker employs a trash barge full of leaking laughing gas to transform the citizens of Gotham into actual April Fools with the help of Captain Clown, a robot clown who we never see again. If Batman doesn't stop the actual clown prince of crime, everyone will go permanently mad, including his friend, butler, and surrogate British daddy, Alfred. It isn't grounded in the reality the show settles into later on, but it's got a visual tone and grit and grime that cements Gotham as the grossest city to live in for episodes to come. Plus, that soundtrack is just something else. Original air date September 22nd, 1992. Written by Carl Swenson. Directed by Kevin Altieri. Music by Shirley Walker with animation services by Ackham. Starring Kevin Conroy as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Bob Hastings as Driver, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Alfred Pennyworth, Mark Hamill as the Joker, which I believe was a redub of Tim Curry, who originally recorded the episode, Marie Devon as Summer Gleason, Pat Fraley, our guest, as Jest, and Richard Mall, aka Two-Face, in other episodes as the Bat Computer. Today's guest, Pat Fraley. Pat is a veteran voice actor who you may know best as Krang, Casey Jones, and Baxter Stockman from the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Cousin It in the Addams Family cartoon, Young Scrooge McDuck on DuckTales, and Wildcat in Tailspin, amongst many, 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 many other roles. Today we sit down for a chat about his career and his brief role on Batman the Animated Series in this very episode. So excited to have you on the show. This is a real treat. Well, it's a treat for me to be here. Yeah. Or as Krang would say, Well, you keep telling me about the good life, Justin, because it makes me want to puke. <laughs> you don't understand how amazing that is. Just to, just to kick things off with a little Krang. Man, I'm probably a shower of all your days. I was there when you were Indian style in front of the TV with a Fruit Loop stuck to your forehead. I mean, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. <laughs> I got to tell you, when I first, my first job, I was 30. <clears throat> and I went to Hanna-Barbera for my first job, a Scooby-Doo. I walk in the room and I hear, who turned out to be Dawes Butler and Don Messick, and they're doing something. And it was so trippy because... When I was eight years old, they started that on TV. 
That's when Rough and Ready shows started, and they made cartoons for kids. And it went all the way back to there, and I mean way back, 57, 58, something like that. And it was a trip. Because, see, the thing about people that do voices, I think their fans feel as if they own them more than on-camera actors. They're like puppets. Uh-huh. They, they were with them. They invested so much, and they were art combined with voice. Right. It's I mean, one more level farther away from seeing somebody as an actor or as absolutely. a human being. Yeah. You know, it's not like meeting Brad Pitt. It's like, no, I own this guy, uh-huh. or I own part of it, at least. And that's just a theory. But I, I've noticed with fans, yeah, they can get nervous and stuff, and when I go to a convention, sometimes I have to calm them down. But there is an ownership. There is a, a relationship that I walk into. Yeah, they're able to be fully invested in a character in a bit more immersive a way. Oh, more than I know. I mean, I did uh, Wildcat on Tailspin, and he was kind of an ignorant but lovable uh, mountain lion. He'd have lines like, But it was just a rancher banana. I forgot. Or, oh, look, there's a new island on the map. No, it's Guacamole. <laughs> Real silly. And I'd be signing an autograph, and somebody would say, in episode 87, when you turn a balloon and say, hey, which way are we going? What did you mean by that? And I go, you know, dude, I probably saw four shows because I, I was busy doing them. In fact, I, I think maybe 200 Ninja Turtles, I've seen six or seven. Well, yeah, I, just looking at your, you know, IMDb credits just for Ninja Turtles alone, <laughs> you're like 40 characters on that show. Yeah. Including Krang, Baxter Stockman, you know. Casey I mean, I, Jones. Yeah. Ray Filet. Well, there's a reason for that. First of all, when people say, oh, man, you've done 4,000 characters, I always say, yeah, well, I know a chef at Denny's that's made 10,000 bad pancakes. So, but we always think, oh, what a superlative because a lot of work. Now, it could be a lot of bad work. But nevertheless, that's for a laugh. The reason we did so many and why we were schooled so well, Rob Paulson, even Cam Clark, my cousin, mm-hmm. the reason why we got an uh, education and did so many characters is characters is that Fred Wolf, the producer, was so cheap. He would never get us aghast. So do you feel like you had to develop a roster of characters, you know, on the fly? Do you think you developed characters that you wouldn't have developed because of just that show alone? Well, uh, I never thought of it that way. When I came to town, I was 30. I had uh, started my career in Australia doing Shakespeare. And that's after I went to acting school. I went to Cornell, got an MFA in acting. Emigrated to Australia, was doing Shakespeare, and okay. I was okay on on stage. But if we did Chekhov, the pilot light went out. I wasn't that good. I was always good at big characters, vibrant big characters. Uh, God gifted me with the ability to do them big, but still have some kind of link to reality, Mm -hmm. some little link. So uh, I go into a studio in Australia uh, to do some voiceover, which I never heard of. They didn't even use the term. It was like, here's a, a talent. They didn't even have voice talent. And I did it. And when I left, one of the producers went, oh, we like you. And I went, really? Why? Oh, you're so big, we can't get the other actors to be that big. Now I thought of that. Oh, really? And after a while, I thought, well, you know, I just want to be a performer. And um, if that's what they want, where do they do big characters? Ah, cartoons. Mm -hmm. And that's what got me there. Now, from that time, which is about mm -hmm, 74, 75, to the point when I did my first 
cartoon show at Anna Barbera, which I mentioned. It was in, um, in 80, or early 80, late 70, no, early 79. Uh-huh. So those four years, oh, I'm Irish, I don't know the math. That's when I started developing a list because they had me do a character. Oh, they like that character. So I worked it up and I created a list. So when I came to town uh, to do work and try to find work in cartoons, I had a list. And as I went along, I would lean on that list because I knew they were tested, pride, and true. They like that one. So I'll do that character for that role. Do you remember any of your original characters? Yeah. That you kind of. Well, I have a character called Just Neil. And he's a mall guard and taught himself. And then, the, the, of course, there's a character named Eric Graffiti. <laughs> and he, he would shoot you in the knee, knee but he wouldn't like it. <laughs> he just did it. And then uh, I, I, I did Paul Handelot. <laughs> Sweat on me, Elvis. He's still dead. Uh, they loved that in Australia. Uh, I always did a pretty marketable Jack Nicholson <laughs> um, when did you realize that you had that flexibility? Uh, were you a kid or was it later? Oh, four. I was four years old and I was uh, playing war with the other kids and I was really good at dying. And I trained the other kids, okay, arch your back, yeah, like that, and foam with the mouth and go, <laughs> ach, von Himmel. They loved shooting me because I'd writhe in the dust and, and you know, so, in a sense, I was performing and teaching. Where do you think that instinct came from? I think it has to do with the neuroses of wanting to control my world or life mm -hmm. as a little boy. And I couldn't, but I could control characters. And I could sort of control other people by saying, do it this way, do it that way. That's the teaching aspect. But it was that, oh, I'll do any character, just not me. That got me going. Then my parents, and, and we're talking about early 60s in Seattle, were divorced in about 1961. Unheard of. I mean, nobody got divorced. And that really kind of exacerbated my neuroses to be someone else, control it, have characters. I loved Red Skelton, who was on TV, and he had characters like Clem Kadiddlehopper and San Fernando Red and Freddie the Freeloader. I love that he owned those. Mm -hmm. They were his. And I was really drawn to that. And as I progressed through junior high, and certainly when I got going in high school with drama, I loved Putty and looking like someone else. And I loved Paul Muni, who was that kind of actor. And mm -hmm. Rod Steiger, which you go, is that him? Not sure. They, they say that actors get into performance to reveal or hide. I got into hide. Do you feel like you've gotten the chance to reveal since then, or do you, are you comfortable, still more comfortable hiding? I'm more comfortable hiding. Now it's not so much. I certainly don't have the penchant for hiding, and I'm comfortable talking to you. Yeah. And uh, I don't go into character because I have to. It's interesting because I just saw uh, a documentary on Jim Carrey. He stayed in character for the whole time, and he got in, into Tony Clifton, which was a character that Andy Kaufman created to be out of his head. Yep. And and the interesting part, and what I where I see a, a parallel between the work I've done, my body of work, and Jim Carrey, is that uh, he's gotten to the point where he's saying, "Look, I'm not going to be different. I'm going to just be me, and risk if they like me or not." And I keep thinking, "Well, what if those characters are you?"
Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole you know element to that. Well, and watching him in that film, it really did feel like it was him. Still, oh. <laughs> I mean, he was talking about himself half the time. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know. It's interesting because uh, it's something I've thought about in my life. Are you just putting, presenting yourself as this hail fellow, well met, a smile, Facebook? You've got a profile. I talk to people I've known when I was a kid or knew when I was a kid, and they go, oh, no, you're happy. No, I get sad sometimes. Oh, no, you know. Yeah. But 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 putting that aside, your, your question is a good one, and I don't think I'm more comfortable being me than I am characters. In fact, I like to do a character that's closer to me these days. It's kind of risky. And as I accumulated characters and got to know them and work with them a lot, I found that they were all aspects of my own bad behavior. Hmm. And that was the way I squeaked it out. Like, I've, I've been criticized as being a know-it-all. Well, my new character is that way. He knows everything, uh-huh. Mr. Man, right? And um, uh, being kind of uh, sleazy. Well, uh, I've got Basil Dorothy, my romantic nerd. Oh, I left my pocket protector at home. I feel naked. <laughs> and then I've got uh, Eric Graffiti, who's a sleazebag. Basil's more like my sexy, you know, flirty guy. Yeah, but it feels like an outlet for you to right. kind of explore this Well, they're kind of all stuff. damaged. And when I eventually, you, if you do them enough, you find a style, a pervasive style to what you do. And... I think Ginny McSwain, who loved those kind of strange characters, she loved damaged things, uh, said that I think my characters are like all black orchids with bent petals. Hmm. And at a certain point, I had some that were regular kind of Disney-ass characters. I dumped them because they didn't fit into the style. And when one approaches personal style, it is self-limiting. You have to dump stuff. Yeah, when did you you get comfortable just... I guess being confident in the choices you were making as an actor, because I feel like that is there's a moment where you're like you're trying to please people, you're trying to please people, and then you're like, wait, I got to do what I got to do. I didn't have those words or those thoughts. What I had is I always had a desire to to fulfill the script uh-huh. in the author's words, and I got that through my four years of undergraduate work and a degree in dramatic art, and then the Cornell acting. In those days, you didn't change a dot or a tittle of Ibsen. You just did it. Right. And it was all about fulfilling their dream. And in a sense, <clears throat> Justin, it, 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 it planted in my mind that acting is not an art form. Writing is. Now, improv is because you're getting into writing. But it, I think an actor is a support craft discipline. Uh, when, if they're not making up words, they're just supporting the writing, which is an art. Yeah. How do you approach a script now? Text analysis. When I got a script, I'm looking to come up with a log line, which is a brief sentence on what the whole story is. Because my job is to realize the story. And then I go about finding out where are they, who are they, what are they doing, you know, th- those kind of things. Really good acting has to do with text analysis, knowing what, why you're saying what you're saying. Then you start to track in with the author, even in cartoons. Yeah, what and, do you think separates, I guess, voice acting from acting, acting? Or do you not see a separation between it? Well, I think you need to exaggerate, and I have to talk about exaggeration a bit, a bit more. My buddy Brad Garrett, the actor comedian, thinks the same way. you got to give them a little bit more because they can't see you. Now, exaggeration has this um, definition of 
lying. I don't mean that. I mean it's bold and it's fully committed and it's a little bit more vibrant. There's technique to what we do. So I use that to just, in a way, to help make up for the fact that I'm unseen. Mm-hmm. By the way, I am six foot three and incredibly attractive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. honestly just shimmering and gleaming right now. It's kind of blinding. Okay, thanks. <laughs> thank you. I give you. Uh, your muscles have just filled the room. <laughs> I know. I just hurt this shirt. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I just got pushed into a corner. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to touch briefly, at least, upon your, your work on Batman the Animated Series. I know you have such a long list of credits. It's insane. You've done everything I grew up on, everything people beyond me have grew, grown up on. I mean, it, it's nuts. Batman, I remember one character did. Bad Mike. And I played Bad Mike, and it was like this. A very cartoony character for a very realistic show. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a later episode. Totally. And, and uh, I could have done other stuff like gangsters. I think Mola Marge and I played some thugs. Yeah, I don't you know. played a thug in an episode called The Last Laugh, which was a Joker episode. I mean, was he kind of a thug like that? Yeah. Probably, yeah. I probably backed off a little, so I was no one like that. And probably backed off and sort of fit into the style of that show. That was a unique style. Didn't you tell me, Justin, that Batman started about 92? Yeah. Well, I did a whole season, maybe 200 shows of Ninja Turtles and a lot of work. And every time I went in for one of these new centurions or something, G.I. Joe, they go, now, play it, but it's realistic. Well, it wasn't. I mean, 80, 90% was comedy, for one thing. And the other thing was, it was melodrama, not realism. And that's a little bit just like, hi, Bob, how you doing? I hope you're doing okay. You know, it's a little ramped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it stems to reality. But when I went into audition... Uh, for Andrea, uh, I'm not talking about doing Batmite or the gangster. I just got hired off this. They just said, bring him in. Uh, but Andrea, I had met at Hanna-Barbera, and she tagged me as a guy that did big, silly, goofy characters as well. And she'd hire me on shows when they needed that, like Batmite. Mm-hmm. They wanted something cartoony. Well, she went for me, which used to hurt my feelings until I thought, well, maybe she's right. Maybe I am really good at that, and that's where... I should be going. But anyway, going back to, I have one good story about Batman, is that uh, I was up for the role of uh, the Joker. Mark Hamill and I were were up. We knew each other. So we walk into the place where they're auditioning, and we're looking at our sides. And he points out, oh, look, they want a John John Glover type or Tim Curry. So Mark and I walk through the door to get ready to audition and get in line. There is John Glover, and there's Tim Curry. (laughs) And one of us says, what do you think our odds are, slim or none? (laughs) And we went in and didn't get hired. Now, what happened about nine months later or whatever, they called in for for someone to replace Tim Curry to do all the ADR. ADR, all his roles. Why? Because he was a baritone going to a base, and they just didn't see it that way. Just going back a little bit, when I auditioned for it, which I didn't get, Andre said, play it real. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm going, yeah, right, real, after years of successfully not paying attention to that note. So I played the Joker schizophrenic. You know, when he went into saying, no, don't bother, I go into a, like a southern dialect. Then I go into this and that, just nuts. Didn't get it. So nine months later, Mark Hamill and I both back to see if we're going to replace the Joker. I still don't get it. Because I haven't seen the show. I was busy. Uh-huh. And I do it schizophrenic. Mark gets it. 
because he was wonderful at doing that role, by the way, because he was like evocative and creepy, but he wasn't totally schizoid. So that's one show that relied on the performances rather than the animation. It was like a radio show that happened to be animated yeah, with I mean, really good acting, like movie acting. They, yeah, they for sure. We talked a little about it off mic, but you know, they they pulled from a lot of like TV and filmic actors at the time. Oh yeah, like Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who just finished uh, the FBI and had done Seventy Seven Sunset Strip before that, where I got to know him. And a lovely man, and got to, and Dan O'Hurley, who'd done uh, Odd Man Out, and came over with Orson Welles from the Abbey Theater, and also did uh, Robinson Crusoe. Under uh, in the film by Louis von Brunwell, Brunwell, and oh, I had these great conversations with these you know like real actors, but uh, it was a style that was I didn't get, and it was unique to the industry. Do you feel like after that show came out, there was there was some sort of shift to more work like that, or do you think it was kind of uniquely itself? I'm thinking it was uniquely itself, um, but I don't recall. Anybody going up to me and going, now play this real? Because I would have listened at that point after being, you know, not getting roles. And um, that didn't happen. If they did, I'd look at the the designs and read a little of the script. It was silly. And a lot, again, 80%, maybe more comedy. And my job was to make something not very funny a little bit funnier. Yeah, what did you do with a script that was, I mean, you've probably had bad scripts. There, there's good ones and bad ones, you know, when you've done as much as you've done. Right. How do you, how do you take a bad script and make it a good piece? <laughs> well, you can't. Uh, 80 to 90% of my careers is based on doing bad scripts or ones that weren't stellar. Anytime I get good copy, Justin, I think, oh, no, how am I going to mess this up? <laughs> they got the wrong guy. They, they should give this to a good actor. So that's a struggle. It doesn't happen very often. The mediocre scripts are okay, run of the mill. I, personally, I would add a little, a little, okay, which is rewriting, really. And um, I would uh, certainly have a lot of contrast. Like, what's funny about comedy being comedy is not funnier because it's faster. It's because if you play a line faster, there's no transition. Like, I'll give you an example of drama, and then I'll do the same line. And make it comedy. Okay. Okay. Bye, Barbara. Huh. Oh, man. I hate her. Now, here's comedy. Bye, Barbara. I hate her. No transition. Right. And, and that that's huge funny. juxtaposition in a short yes, amount of time. Yes, it is a juxtaposition. And uh, it's what we call, you know, the change up. or uh-huh. And it happens a lot in animation. Why is it, it not only being more funny... But it also moves the characters around. If you've got a character going, bye, Barbara, his hand's way up in the air, and then he's scrunched over saying, I hate her, and we see his face. So it lends itself to limited animation, meaning they're not done on 24. They're not 24 pictures mm-hmm. a second. They're like seven or eight, you know? It's jerky. Do you feel like you've gotten the opportunity to play things more grounded or, or you know, realistic? or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Pixar stuff. I've done um, Tangled, and I did nine years with Tim Allen doing um, Buzz Lightyear. I mean, yeah, you were go-to Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> yeah, to infinity and residuals. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway. That was yeah. officially in one of the movies, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
No, I did his exertion sounds and moves because he couldn't do them well, and he did some stuff, and but all the toys. But yeah. I've had my opportunity to do some good stuff. I, I could list it for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> uh, they actually got some questions from some listeners. Good. Uh, they said, as a veteran voice actor, was there a character you played that you wish you could have voiced more often? Off the top of my head, I, I, I can't think of one. I've never been a big guy that got sad when a, a show closed. I recall being in plays and the, the last performance of a run, the curtain was shut, and there'd be people in tears. I understand that. But I was going, oh, yeah, get me out of here. I don't know why. It was like, move on. And so n- not not my cup of tea. Well, and also as a voice actor, too, you're afforded, you get to move on maybe three times a day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Justin, we do two, 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 two a day usually because... We need about three hours, and then you do a show in the morning and afternoon. But we we didn't have much time. And <clears throat> I can honestly say, with the exception of doing a, a TV series where I, I was on contract weekly for maybe, I don't know, 12 weeks or something, with that exception and the exception of a couple two-day contracts doing on-camera commercials, I have been a day performer, day contract day, for my entire 40 Seven years. Yeah, looking at your IMDb, so there's so many iconic roles, and in between, you've done additional voices. Yeah, on everything. Yeah. What does that entail from show to show? I mean, is it different? Well, uh, um, it's usually a term used for doing ADR or right. loop groups. Okay. Because they don't know what you did, and you, I don't remember what I did, but you know, doing movies like uh, I Am Legend, Lincoln, um, Sully, Clint Eastwood's film. I forget a lot of them. Um, Tangled, uh, Monsters, Inc., Lion King, I think it's or some kind of thing. But anyway, you do everything, so they, they never list it. Now, once in a while on a cartoon show, they do that because they can't remember or they don't have you listed. But usually it's movies. Mm. And I do a couple of those a year. I love it. The most talented people in the industry do ADR and group sessions. They're spooky good, and they no one knows who they are because they're busy every day. Well, they have to be like mechanically finessed as well. Well, they have the trick of matching lips and putting that in, but still the acting. You know, when they cry like a baby, they're barely heard. They're so real. I mean, the whole thing is they're so real. They're up there doing voiceover, but they are doing movie acting. Is there any role that you haven't gotten to play that you wish you could play still? Well, there's a whole myriad of roles that I wish I could play now that I'm old. I don't wish I could play. I just know I won't be able to do it. I'm too old. I can't play Hamlet. Now, I've never wanted to play Hamlet. But now I go, oh, there's a world of stuff that I no longer will do. I will no longer have the ability to do. But that's the extent of it. It falls in line with the same thing about I love closing shows. I've never never really had a penchant, a desire to do something, and I didn't get to do it. I could, probably there's some shows I wish I were in along the way I didn't make. Aside from Batman and doing uh, The Joker, uh, there's nothing I can think of. Yeah. And that wasn't a big deal. No. Because my buddy Mark did it better. That's the other thing. When you see it, it's better than you do. So that takes the edge off. Are there things that you're... I guess, excited about that you see in, like, new voice actors that, that, you know, like, things that didn't exist 
and you wish you could have approached it in the same way, like now that there's easier access to seeing people do things or the craft of it? Well, I think that the casting uh, circumstance is so more troubling now that I that takes my desire away from that. Those kids that come in and do a role, they, they were up against 500 people or 50. In my day, there were less jobs, yes, but they'd still get pad. So it was a whole different thing. So I look at them and go, wow, what they had to go through to get that. And there's nobody that I've, I've seen that I went, oh, wow, they weren't around when I was young. They, you know, they were very talented people. And we got to do bigger stuff. And I like that. Maybe because of me, but we got to do more broad, wild, woolly, without restraints. We didn't have the great god of realism on our shoulders. So um, I don't I don't look at young people and talented ones. I don't say all oh, they're no, none of them are talented. We were, but I don't look at them with envy at all. Is there? Did you grow up on uh, certain like comedies or cartoons that you feel like influenced you? They must have, but I never thought of being a, uh, a cartoon guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like Daffy Duck because he was crazy, and I like Donald Duck because he would go nuts. I liked him when he went nuts and he was angry, and that's part of being a kid. I think that's part of the desire that kids have for the Incredible Hulk because Hulk smash, and he smashes stuff, and I think kids have that. Just like my boys used to love prison films <laughs> and prison breaks. And I think there's that concept of I'm trapped, I want to get out of here. So I like that aspect. And I remember constantly, art was my first love, trying to draw Mickey Mouse's ears and never getting them right. <laughs> there was that. But uh, there was never, um, I like the silly, goofy characters. I like them better than Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. Other than that, there wasn't a, you know, like, uh, uh, I watched cartoons. I liked them. They were my world. Uh-huh. Well, uh, there were no kids' movies when I grew up. So we'd go to a black-and-white movie, hated it, you know, Gentleman's Agreement or something, <laughs> snore. Or, or my mom would drive us to the drive-in. But there was a cartoon first, and that was my world. That splash of color said, it's your time. Hmm. And that's sadly gone to oh. me because now cartoons can be for anybody and not for kids. You've made that that your time is now your life. <laughs> that's that's the coolest thing. You you got to turn that into a job. Yes, I did. I did, and I never thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah, you got to capture that short moment before the boring movie and just be like, okay, this is how I make money. <laughs> that's a nice thought. I'll take that home with me. That's Justin. the coolest. <laughs> yeah. Why uh, not? Yeah. One more uh, question from on here. Um, it, can you break down and walk us through how to do a Krang voice? Sure. I was not the first choice for Krang. In fact, the director had done it. The producer didn't like what he did, and he'd overcast himself, whatever. He called me in. He said, okay, let's go. And he gave me the script. And it said, Krang, a chortling, bubbling, blurbering ball of a undulating mass, but funny. And I went, oh, you know, you talked about, you know, you have your list of characters. Nothing on my list like that. And Fred Wolf, who's a producer, said, you ready to go? I go, give me two minutes. Well, I went back to how I taught. <clears throat> I had started teaching about five, six years before in earnest discipline. And I knew that any character voice can be broken down to its elements. Pitch, pitch characteristic, tempo, placement, mouth work, or rhythm. So I went, okay, why don't you assign something to each of those characters, those elements, and pray you come up with something. 
Okay, pitch. Okay, because pitch kind of high, but with a very, very large variation in it. Pitch characteristic. Uh, I'll make him kind of a strike like that. Uh, uh, let's see, rhythm. I'll give an undulating rhythm because he's, you know, he's a blob. And then I thought, uh, oh, policeman, I'll make it caught me in the back of my throat. So he's like that. Then I thought mouth work. Well, he's disgusting, so I'll burp. He's a fake burp. Oh, no, they'll never let me do that between lines. I have to do them on lines. Well, I learned that in the fourth grade, how to speak backwards. So I knew I how to speak backwards. And then I thought, oh, funny. Oh, with all this going on, maybe I can make him the Jewish mother. Who knew? Okay, <laughs> Krang, take one. Well, this is what I get by surrounding myself with the idiots. And I was off to the races. Oh, that was beautiful. I wish people could have seen that. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, any last thoughts on Batman or your career or things that you wanted to impart upon people who want to do voiceover? Well, first, a couple things come to mind. First of all, I think we were talking before, and I think, honestly, and during this show, I think Batman was unique. And I think it's, uh, of all the kind of shows or little Facebook pages or whatever, I, Batman makes sense to me because it, it stands alone. And the other thing about voiceover or cartoons or being silly, I think, I think people should play. And if it becomes a career, that's fine. But playfulness is very valuable. I don't know why, but I think that um, when I teach at UCLA or someplace, I, I'll say, look, I'll never call this. Uh, I will never say, wait till you get to the real world. Because what you're doing here is real. But I will say the world out there is harsher. It's a harsh world. And so I think that be, being playful has become even more important. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea why. But I see it when I teach and when actors are playful and they're laughing. There's joy. And we do need joy. And I don't know why. Uh, to, to survive and enjoy life. <laughs> Amen. Uh, Quickly, you teach classes. Is there, if somebody lives in Los Angeles, wants to take your classes? Or no matter where they live, I have 6,000 students around the world. And I email them when they need something or when I can give them something. And all I have to do is go to patfraley.com. And in the contacts is my personal email, my phone number. I'm available until I go to heaven, then I'm not. <laughs> so they'll get the idea if they go to patfraley.com. Cool. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you, Justin. And that was Pat. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Tell a friend. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at BTAS Podcast and me at HeyJustin. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is usually the booming voice of this podcast. Thanks again to Pat for stopping by to talk about his career. And a heartfelt thanks to Tori Malatia, who pleaded with the governor just as they were about to give him the chair for breaking into my home. You wouldn't let me fry, would you? Tori, you're right. Capital punishment is never the answer. You're free to go! Until next episode, guys. Bye.